SportsLit is co-founded and co-hosted by Neil Acharya and Nate Sager. Engineer and technical producer, Michael Ella. Executive producer, Neil Acharya. Welcome to SportsLit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I'm Nathan Sager. Today, we're going to be joined by Morgan Campbell to discuss My Fighting Family, Borders and Bloodlines and Battles That Made Us, released January 23rd, 2024 by McClelland and Stewart. This is the debut book for Mr. Campbell, senior contributor at CBC Sports, previously sports writer with the Toronto Star and the New York Times. And as I heard him say the other day, it's a memoir from being from a family of proud, sharp, opinionated people. My Fighting Family is a history of Morgan Campbell's family's battles that span generations, and it's also a coming-of-age story. As the synopsis reads, a powerful reckoning with what it means to be black in Canada, particularly when you have strong American roots. So where are you really from? Now, that's a question any visible minority grew up hearing, um, especially of a certain generation. I'm not sure how much it would happen now. Um, but because we are of Campbell's generation, I can definitely speak to that. Um, and it, you know, it's not always offensive. You know, I think even Morgan kind of writes about just, you know, being, uh, you know, not kind of knowing it's loaded, but not necessarily being offended by it. Um, because it's often coming from your own community and it's, and in its own way. Um, and that means, uh, in, in, in the case of that he describes, uh, someone within his, you know, within the black diaspora saying, what's your last name? And that that's actually applicable to a lot of ethno groups. Uh, you know, last name can, can tell a lot. So that's how the book starts. And, and specific to Campbell, he writes, I don't know enough about each Island and enclave to ascertain why some surnames concentrated in certain places, but growing up around black folks in Toronto taught me that if I met a Barrett or a Webley or a white, they were probably Jamaican. If I encountered a Brathwaite, their folks were most likely from Barbados, unless they were from Guyana. But they weren't from Nova Scotia, where names like Kane and Beals and Provo told stories older than Canada itself. He goes on to write, My mom was a Jones and my dad was a Campbell. And those names appear in big numbers almost anywhere people speak English. As labels, they're much too general to say anything specific. So on with that, he continues, Sometimes people ask me out of good faith curiosity, but often the question carried undertones. They weren't just seeking information, but a way to categorize me. These were bigger questions of belonging. And that's the genesis of this book. Um, and Morgan takes it from there. And of course, he weaves sports throughout the narrative because he's a sports writer. Um, so where does Morgan Campbell belong? You know, between two countries, between two families as part of that family? Where does Morgan belong? I think that's really where this starts and wh where the, the idea for this book came about, to tell you that. Not necessarily to discover it, but kind of to tell you. Mm-hmm. Neil, 
And it's funny when you're rhyming off, when he's mor reading Morgan rhyming off some of those family names, you're like Barrett, you know, like RJ Barrett of the, of the Toronto Raptors, uh, Brathwaite, uh, hockey fans of a certain vintage would remember Fred Brathwaite, who had a long pro career and a long coaching career. Uh, but my, the cross-reference that came for me, convenient, superficial cross-reference uh, in terms of, you know, memoirs about searching for sort of a black American identity and consciousness when you grew up in a nor northern nation, uh, reminded me of the rapper Jason Diakite, Timbuktu, and his memoir, A Drop of Midnight, which came out in early 2020. Uh, you know, in, in the case of, uh, of Diakite, his dad's a human rights lawyer and around 1970 or so. He decides he's going to live in Sweden. And in Campbell's case, in those turbulent 1960s, think of the movie that came out a few years ago, The Trial of the Chicago 7, and, you know, the 68 Democratic Convention and all the political and social upheaval. You know, Martin Luther King is, is killed. And he's, his parents decide to follow his maternal grandparents and move from Chicago to Toronto, even though, as Morgan writes, the South Side never left his dad, and nor did his mom, uh, Jeannie, ever lose the punch or punchiness that sort of helped her deal with being part of the only black family in her West Side Chicago neighborhood. Of course, those are just things I read and memorized, right? Uh, but, you know, because he's writing about this and he's tying it in with, you know, sports being part of his identity and, and worldly outlook, and there's the shared regard for sports writing, I can understand it a little bit, you know, I think, I hope. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think this book is is out there for for everyone to read and 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 to to understand his story, you know. Um, and 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 he does a great job of writing it and and making it something that's that that grips you. Um, this cannot be classified as a sports book, uh, but sports permeates the narrative. Campbell grew up uh, as a sports fan, uh, and he was driven to sports by Sports Illustrated, um, which arrived at his door around fourth grade. And of course, he calls it fourth grade, not grade four, right? That's the, uh, <laughs> the Chicago in him, the ways that he still keeps the American part of him alive when he's in Canada. His parents encouraged him to read and it, and his whole family to read, uh, his, you know, his, his siblings. And it was writers like Ralph Wiley that captivated him and catalyzed him to follow his eventual career path as a sports writer, which he's probably most well-known for his time with the Toronto Star and now with CBC Sports. Mm -hmm. And for background, just to, I mean, obviously we, we, were, we encourage anyone listening to, you know, go seek this book out. But uh, Campbell, uh, his, you know, own athletic background, he was a pretty good high school football player in Mississauga. He was a defensive back with uh, sprinter speed and he drew recruiting interest from NCAA teams in various divisions and a bunch of, you know, Canadian university teams. Now, that era, college football and Canadian University Bowl, back in the 90s, that's kind of one of my, you know, rabbit holes. So I, I relish the sections where he describes himself, you know, dreaming big dreams, thinking he's going to go from playing for what he called his dysfunctional high school team to one of those, as the late, great Jeffrey S. Smith might have put it. Great American football factories where Campbell saw himself, quote, patrolling the defensive backfield someplace like Syracuse, or Cal, or eventually Northwestern. And Campbell, in fact, was on the roster of the Big Ten's Northwestern Wildcats during the two most glorious football autumns in their sometimes dank history. Uh, that includes 1995. He was there. He was on the roster as a freshman, a Canadian walk-on. 
I think one of the defensive backs, a guy named Chris Martin, not Chris Martin from Coldplay, although the Wildcats being based in Chicago often did play in the cold, you know, nicknamed him the Mountie. Uh, but after this sort of slow build, after, you know, two straight decades of being an also ran in the Big Ten, the Wildcats took the purple to Pasadena. They upended like the likes of Notre Dame, Michigan, Penn State, and they crashed the party at the granddaddy of them all, the Rose Bowl. And I can remember being in my parents' living room, you know, as the only football fan in the family, trying to explain the context of this team in these, these purple and black uniforms playing, you know, the Southern Cal Trojans with future pro football Hall of Fame wide receiver Keyshawn Johnson, you know, just, you know, bullying everybody. I that, That's not a big part of the book, but without, you know, having, sh- you know, shooting a shot is that, you know, kid from Mississauga going down to play at a Big Ten pro- program, uh, the craftsmanship uh, Morgan has as a word worker, it, it probably looks a lot different, Neil. And speaking of first granddaddies, another big part of why Campbell's life unfolded in Canada owes to his maternal grandfather, Claude Jones. He was a jazz pianist who played with some greats. He was, you know, he'd be on the same billing with Oscar Peterson and Sarah Vaughn, whom presumably need no introduction. Uh, a lot of things there. One of another one of Campbell's uncles, Jeff Jones, he's touring right now with Burton Cummings. Neil, there's like 12,004 tangents we could go on with this episode. And I might be wrong on this because I didn't go and fact check, but I think there's a Sarah Vaughn connection to Russ Cortnell. So, yes, her uh, adopted daughter was married to Russ Cortnell. Yeah, I think uh, for, former Toronto Maple Leafs hockey player and who totally wasn't traded to the Montreal Canadiens for, for an enforcer. <laughs> that never happened. So 11,005 tangents we can go on. You know, and here's yeah, we another just one. My name. How about 11,006? Because you talked about him playing on dis- uh, Campbell, playing on dysfunctional high school football teams. Remember, uh, he he, uh, he may have alluded to that it uh, allowed him to you know work in dysfunctional newsrooms later. <laughs> um, um, so uh, Campbell, back to Campbell. His American roots landed him as an outsider, with outsider status and in sharing that outsider status through my fighting family, Campbell does well to help us shake um, the idea, you know, as it says in the synopsis of Canada's utopian multicultural reputation. So it kind of challenges that, but I think even more so what I think makes this book valuable is it challenges preconceived notions of what um, all of us may perceive on the outside of what, you know, what the black experience in Canada is. It shows uh, those of us on the outside, how nuanced it really is. And uh, depending, you know, on what part of the country you're from, whether you're Nova Scotia or, or if you're in uh, Ontario uh, and and anywhere else, really, it's going to vary. But, I think the most important audience for this is not, you know, the ignorant per se. I think it's the people that think they get it. You know, the people out there that kind of, oh, I understand. I know, you know, I'm, you know, I'm dialed in, you know, maybe you're not, (laughs) maybe you're not, maybe you should read this and just sit back and learn. So that's one of the takeaways I took from this. Um, But yes, on to you, Nate. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. And there's, you're you're never going to know it all. And, you know, and be able to relate. And it is a, you know, a, you know, multi, multi-faceted thing, thing. Uh, uh, but in terms of, you know, the generational part of it, you know, since uh, we're all around the same, all three of us who are going to be on this soda around the same age, there was sort of a lot of, oh, this, oh, this is how it was, you know, a couple hours away from where you and I were growing up. There was, but there was a lot that was particular, there were some cultural markers in there of being, uh, you know, what it was like to be in high school in Ontario in the 1990s, uh, 
you know, and in just terms, you know, the music talking about hip hop. We I mean we did get some of it down down Kingston Way, didn't we, Neil? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was <laughs> certainly uh, a very relatable part of the book to me. Like, cause, and 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 I think as you may have mentioned, he he almost writes the book like a bit of a mixtape, right? Each, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and, and I'm even thinking, like, I always love the community episode where there's, like, all the alternate timelines, and I'm thinking, hey, maybe there was a timeline where, you know, our guest, uh, Morgan Campbell, and you and I, were, we, were, we were all at the same high school, and it sounds like you and I wouldn't have had any trouble making the 1994 Woodland Rams football team, and I say that as someone who went to a school that didn't even have a team, we had the statue of the horse. Uh, now, quickly, a reminder to you, listener, uh, you know, you, if you want to figure out where that reference is from. Uh, peruse uh, sportslit.ca you can find background on all of our episodes since 2017 and more saliently for the guests links to buy the books and of course that will include my fighting family and of course will include a 2021 episode my mother's daughter by Perdita Felician who Morgan is married to and they are raising their young daughter Nova and we're happy to have him here today Neil absolutely and yes uh, I want to just repeat what you're saying uh, if you're listening to this and uh, you you like what you're hearing, um, uh, you can go to our website and buy these books. Uh, all you have to do is click on the link, and it supports the author and uh, might even help us a little bit too. So um, enough talking. Time to bring on Morgan Campbell. And we're back on Sports Lit, Neil Acharya, Nate Sager, and very pleased to be joined by Morgan Campbell uh, to discuss my fighting family. Uh, Morgan, thank you for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be here. Um, first of all, how many how many interviews have you done uh, today and and since the uh, the release, which was if I'm right, January twenty third, correct? Okay, this is the second one today. Uh, probably three or four more this coming Friday, which is. Three days from now. Um, Monday was a lot. That was CBC syndication. So that mm-hmm. was 14 in a row. Uh, all basically the same questions, too. But 14 is not my record, you know, because sometimes my capacity as a sports journalist, I get hauled on to CBC syndication, you know, to talk about whatever the hot topic is. So my record with CBC syndication is 17 in one day. Well, I'm going to share that number uh, because I write the syndication questions for, on Thursdays for Scott Russell and Anastasia. Okay. So I'm going to tell them that you got 17 because the most I've seen is 14. So, yeah. So uh, it was it was the it was the week that uh, Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor fought. Oh wow! Okay. And 17 out uh, there in the 100 degree heat on the Las Vegas Strip. Floyd uh, Floyd Mayweather, uh, who uh, you hung out with at your family reunion. At a family reunion, it was not my family. It was a family reunion. Because the thing about uh, growing up, and this is in the book, um, <laughs> you know, my dad had a lot of family in Grand Rapids. So basically every summer we were at family reunions in Grand Rapids, except the names of the families at the family reunion would change, but it would always be the same people there. So it, it was hard to tell, like, who was actually cousins and who were just the local friends that came because there was food. Um, but th- this family reunion was not like my dad's direct relatives, but we were there and 13 year old Floyd, 13 year old Floyd Mayweather was there as well. So, and, and he introduced himself by his full name. Is that correct? Yes. A hundred percent. So basically if, if you want the play by play, uh, we were at like a reception at, at, at a hotel 
uh, the way big family, big African-American family reunions work is that, you know, there's a couple of days in the park, everybody's there, but then there's also like, it's like a convention almost, right? And the, the, the Saturday night, everyone comes, you have like a banquet at a hotel. There's, you know, speeches, all this stuff. And, uh, and then they dance. So this is like during the dance part of it. And, uh, you know, there's some kids my age who are kind of at the fringes of the dance floor. Some people are sitting, some are standing, and, you know, but they're all from Grand Rapids. They all knew each other. So I'm this new guy and there's this skinny kid with a huge high top and like a, a T-shirt, really short sleeve T-shirt. Like it was just a young T-shirt. Like he was 13. And that T-shirt was probably for like a nine or 10 year old, <laughs> really s- slim, sinewy kid. Uh and he just starts talking to me. <laughs> He's like, who are you? Because I was new. Everyone else, they all knew each other. I'm like, oh, I'm Morgan. And he says to me, I'm Floyd Mayweather. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was like, I was already by then like reading Ring Magazine. I was a boxing nerd. And sorry. So he said, I'm Floyd Mayweather. And then he said, my dad's Floyd Mayweather Sr. He fought Sugar Ray. Mm. And I said, y'all related to Roger Mayweather? Because that was the Mayweather that I could think of mm. off the top of my head. He's like, yeah, that's my uncle. And then, you know, it's a little more small talk and that was that. And then like all these years later, he becomes who he becomes. And I'm like, hey, that's the kid from the family reunion in, in Grand Rapids. Well, family is, I mean, the, the book is called My Fighting Family and and it is all about your family. And, and my question is um, the sell and the sell on this to, to the publisher. Now, I know you write about how they approached you, um, but how much did social change the social change perhaps we saw after the death of George Floyd create a, a, a market. I, I don't want to say a market, but a market for, you know, a Canadian sports writer to, start, to, to put out a book specifically about his family. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I mean, I'd written the proposal before George Floyd and they were ready to buy the book before George Floyd. Okay. Uh, so that had nothing to do with it. I mean, what F- George Floyd did was really get, a lot of white people and especially corporations really attuned and plugged in and concerned about diversity for about eight months. Hmm. And now we've seen the pendulum swing back the other way. And that was one of the questions I posed. I had a, 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 a an opinion, an opinion piece in the star uh, right after George Floyd. And the question I posed to Canadian newsrooms, because then at that point, everybody was looking for black people or just diversity. So you could get white women and be like, we have see George Floyd. We care about diversity. He's our new white women. Okay. Mm. But the question I posed is, is this a new commitment to diversity or is this January at the gym? In the sense that everyone for the first six weeks of the year, they're very motivated to get fit. And then Valentine's Day hits, they get dates, they get injured, they get whatever. And it's right back into your old habits. And if I look at the Canadian journalism industry, I don't I don't see any evidence that 2020 was not January at the gym. Hmm. Um, but none of that had anything to do with whether or not I could sell this book. Like the the idea of this book you know, stood on its own and they were ready to buy this regardless of whether George Floyd happened. Um, yeah, for sure. And obviously you're, you're a great writer. So my question again, back to the market for the book is it's a very specific topic, right? It's your family. So, so 
so so i mean I, i'm just wondering yeah, if, if, if i was independently famous it would be a very general topic with the same details right do you see what i'm saying morgan campbell writing that story it's a very specific story uh britney spears writing the same story right. it's mass market right i know i see it's exactly what you're saying but go ahead so the so yeah so i mean i'm imagining you must have the in the proposal uh, were they asking you hey how how, how are we going to sell this what who's what's the market out there for your family story because you know they challenge you on these things right yeah but in the if you write a good proposal mm-hmm. you're off and running one of the things i pointed out in the proposal is that this well one of the things even before i wrote the proposal when you're thinking about writing proposals like if there's aspiring writers yes uh listening to this my first advice to you would be go learn to do something else for a living you don't want to live like this <laughs> it's the same thing all the musicians in my family tell all the aspiring musicians in my family yeah stop while you're young detoured you don't want this life but if you must and you write a book proposal but yet you think about books that are like the book you're writing but are also but also think about the ways that the book you're conceptualizing is different and so when I met with Scott Sellers from Penguin Random House, I said, well, I asked him if he'd ever heard of the book. Um, you know, I obviously heard of it. How familiar he was with uh, Boy Wonders by Cahal Kelly. Oh, yeah, exactly. A good friend of mine from the star. Yep. He said, yeah, I commissioned, I commissioned Boy Wonders. I was like, perfect. All right. And I asked him if he'd ever heard of a book called it, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker by Damon Young. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's like, yeah. I was like, think of a book that splits the difference between those two. And that's what I'm thinking. So as long as you uh, make the publisher understand that they're not like taking some weird gamble. Mm -hmm. And again, uh, make them understand that your book is enough like what's already been published to make them comfortable, but different enough from already what's already been published to make them want to put it out there. And you're you're more than halfway there. Nate mm-hmm. and Morgan, how much as you went along writing my fighting family, how much did it come up to be about showing how the black American culture tapping you tapping into that from a very early age really sort of gave you, you know, everything you, what you needed to sort of make your way as a as a black man in Canada and, you know, the 1990s and early uh, 21st century. Yeah, the thing that, um, especially now as an adult, when I look back at how I was raised and like, you know, you guys read the book, like my childhood wasn't perfect. There was a lot of conflict there. Um, But the thing that I really appreciate about my parents is that they raised my sisters and I with a very firm understanding of who we were as African-Americans, even though we lived in Canada. And that in Canada, like growing up in Canada gives you the space and the leeway to hold both those identities dear. Like no one tells you that you can't be what you were before you came to Canada when you come to Canada. It's very different from, for the most part, people that move to the United States and are told you better assimilate or else, right? And so some of it was intentional. A lot of it was just by reflexes, by the way, just because of who my parents were and the way they thought that they nurtured this really strong, but like authentic, organic connection to black American history and culture. Um, you know, and it helped me sort of craft this identity that stands up on either side of the border. Like I don't have to be a different person in the U S than I am in Canada. Um, 
people perceive me differently. So when I go to the US, I'm a Canadian. When I'm in Canada, I'm an American. That's how people perceive me. <laughs> but I'm just the same person. And so when people ask me, I say this all the time, like, you know, people want me to choose. Are you American or Canadian? So I'm American and Canadian. I'm Canadian and American. Are you half and half? No, I'm not half American, half Canadian. Even though I'm a dual citizen, I'm all Canadian, but I'm also all American. <laughs> And that's just the way it is. But I thank my parents for that because I it, I prefer that to being like sort of um, rootless or unmoored or being the person that just like acknowledges my African-American heritage without ever engaging it. Um, you know, it's not something that's abstract to me. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that. Yeah. And one passage that just, you know, just was immediately etched on my mind was talking with family. And you're just like, I didn't just come from their genes, but from their decisions and from okay. events they couldn't control. Yes. How fair or, or how far off is someone if that was, I mean, their, their big takeaway from this book? No, that is fair because we all are, are, are a product of that, right? So... My parents came to Canada because they were so sick of the United States. Let me put it this way. You know, every time some Republican gets elected and you hear all these Americans say, forget it, man, I'm moving to Canada. Right? My parents were those people and they actually did it. Okay? Because when Richard, you know, they watched the civil rights movement unfold. Um watch Martin Luther King get killed, watch Medgar Evers get killed, watch these riots, watch the Vietnam War, like disproportionately target black people as soldiers and watch these black men disproportionately to their numbers in the population come back either in body bags or injured, damaged. So this is the environment. They're like, man, do we want to have kids in this kind of environment? And then Richard Nixon wins. They're like, that's the last straw. Uh, my parents are in Canada. My mom's parents are in Canada already. They're like, let's follow them. But the thing is, the only reason they, they even thought to move to Canada is because my mom's parents are there. And the only reason um, my mom's parents were in Canada is because my mom's dad was a musician. He used to get booked in Toronto and otherwise had no real reason to think of Toronto as a place to even work. Like my, he had, my grandmother had to talk him into coming to Canada just for the first time, just to work. And so if he never made that decision, to take that job in Canada, I would never have been born, right? Because my parents weren't going to have kids in the U.S. If they had a kid, they might have had one. They weren't going to have three. Um, to take it back even further, well, why Why was he a musician? He was a musician because uh, growing up, he was playing piano. He was, he was 10 years old. He was in piano lessons. His sister had just graduated high school. She wanted to go to junior college. And their parents said, well, we're not paying. We can't afford for our daughter to go to junior college and for our son to take piano lessons. And so we're going to invest in our son because he's going to be a man. Women don't need careers. So <laughs> sorry for your luck, Edith. You can get a career. You can be a domestic like a lot of other people, but you, education, that's not for women. And so my grandparents, my great grandparents made that decision, uh, set their son on one trajectory and their daughter on a different trajectory. But you know, if they had chosen, uh, to keep their daughter in college, everything else is different after that because my grandfather does not become a musician and like the chances of him ever coming to Canada become very slim unless he's like winds up working on the railroad or something. But uh, 
So yeah, that that's what I mean. So if you say that, no, you're if that's your takeaway, that's one hundred percent correct. I mean, that's why I wrote it because that's how I feel. That's what I think. <laughs> you, you ever think much about like you know what if you know what if your parents had moved to a different part of Canada? What if what if this? What if that? You ever are you a big sort like of, are you a big I, like alternate timelines type of guy? I guess sort of. I don't get too wrapped up in what ifs, but. Again, I do feel fortunate that we grew up in Southern Ontario, like near the border. Um, like the book I'm reading right now, Bedroom Rapper by uh, Raleigh Pemberton, who's also known as Caden's Weapon. I think he was a poet laureate of Edmonton for a while, but you know his folks were African-American as well. On his mom's side, the grandpa was a, a CFL football player. And then his dad was from New York. And I think the parents, had, his parents, his mom and dad had met in university in, in North Carolina. But here's a guy same, very similar situation in that, you know, he's got African-American parents that are really into music, into culture, all of this. But like him being in Edmonton and especially like the people older than him, like his parents' generation, being in Edmonton had to work so much harder just to access like new music, you know, mm. and to connect with African-American culture because they were so far from everything. Whereas where we grew up in in Toronto, in Mississauga, like we could get to Buffalo quickly, we could get to Detroit quickly, we get to Grand Rapids, we get to Chicago, and so, yeah. If I had grown up in Regina, <laughs> you know, no disrespect to Regina, but you know, if I oh go in, ahead and disrespect Regina, <laughs> if I had grown up in you know Regina or or or, or Ottawa or um, Newfoundland or whatever, things would be very different. One hundred percent. Was there, um, I guess. The the initial itch or just parts of, of your consciousness that led into creating this book, the idea of like um, what it means to be black in Canada in the sense of I think most people, when they associate black culture in Canada, they think of the islands. Right. Yes. Um, and you are. Well, in Canada, in Ontario. Yes. OK, in Ontario. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. Nova Scotia, and yeah, you're yeah, right. In Nova Scotia, probably not. Right. Um, and that was a really interesting part of the book for me to just um, have learn about, you know, your your background. And, and you speak specifically to that. You, you write specifically to that of just being, you know, from America and coming here and how, you know, it isn't uh, this uniform thing that I think most people will probably just associate with, uh, Canada, Ontario with. Right. Yeah. Well, that's also people's reflexive racism speaking. Mm -hmm. In the sense that white people will look at a group of black people and decide all those black people are the same. Mm -hmm. And then seem surprised that like this group of black people comes from different places. And then like one group's experience and one group's language and culture, you cannot just superimpose on the other. Right. Like I get all kinds of white people like, uh, they will ask me where I'm from. I say, Canada, where you're, where you're folks from, United States. But they just see a black person and they'll be like, yeah, so I love vacationing in Jamaica. I'm like, I'm not sure what that has to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> but if you make all of us white, you get it. Because if your friend from Scotland and your, your wife is from Greece, you know, and I'm talking to my friend from Scotland, like, what does he know about Greece? Right. Well, yeah, you got, you're both white. Okay, cool. But like Scotland, mm -hmm. Greece, they're not close together. <laughs> they don't right. really have much to do with each other. And if you grow up uh, black around Toronto, um, and your background is African American, or if you like first generation, or if you are like from 
your roots are like in Southwest Ontario. Uh, you're descended of, you know, uh, underground railroad fugitive slaves, mm-hmm. but you are unambiguously phenotypically black. If you're Scotian every few years in Toronto, like someone, a lot, often black people, sometimes white people, you're going to get, you're going to wind up in that conversation on that treadmill, the, where are you really from treadmill? Where are you from? Mississauga. Where, <laughs> and it's either, where are you really from or where are your parents from? Chicago. Okay. Well, what about their parents? Chicago. What about their parents? Are we playing this game? Right. And for some people, it really is. And white people too. It's hard to conceptualize that there are black people that don't come from the West Indies. Um, And so, yeah, I do wind up addressing that in the book because it's an experience, you know, that everyone in my family had. And there are other people reading it, people that I don't know, but like, I guarantee you that read those passages and say, I've had those exact conversations. And it is like being on a hamster, hamster, hamster wheel. And it's, it doesn't tie directly into how the book starts. It's 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 different. But someone's asking your last name, and that means so much uh, too. Just finding out what your last name is down there, yeah. And so, well, and the difference between those two types of conversations too are that the "Where are you really from?" Yeah, conversation really often has to do like those questions are asked in such a different tone, um, mm-hmm. and the intent is different. <laughs> who are you like trying to see whether or not I measure up? Do you measure my, do I measure, do you, do you measure up to this standard of blackness that I have set? Mm-hmm. And if you're not, if you're not from an Island, I'm not sure you measure up. And then f- from amongst the islands, if you're not from an approved Island, big Island versus little Island, right. or whatever, then you don't measure up. Whereas the woman in Windsor at the beginning of the book, and she's, you know, needling me, not needle, but like uh, uh, very pleasantly, but you know, yeah. Uh, she's asking my last name. It's a similar version of the same thing, but yeah. you know, she was, she already figured that I was. Even, I'm not from Windsor, but she figured I was from there. I looked the part. I profiled as a as a as a black Windsorite, you know. And she's just trying to figure out who I belong to, you know. Yeah. But, it, but her radar was not that off because again, it turned out that like some of her friends from uh, childhood were good friends with my uncle back in Toronto, so her radar was not completely off. It's it's interesting, you know, the where you're really from thing, because I get that. And I, if someone says, where are you from? I was, I was born in Newfoundland. So I love to say Newfoundland. And yeah. <laughs> then you see the, what? Yeah, I, the thing I, is, I don't answer that question just to confuse people. I'm more than happy to talk about where I'm from and where my folks are from. Yeah. You know? I just wrote 300 pages about it. Yeah. Uh, but it's... Uh, is when the people like don't believe me or they're trying to tell me where I'm from or when I tell them what the deal is and they, it's not a good enough answer for them. Hey, I don't know what else to tell you, man. Yeah. You know, it is, it is an interesting, uh, where are you really from? Uh, I know Nate, you probably, uh, probably don't get that as much. <laughs> yeah. I don't have, I'm not, yeah, I'm not going to like, you know, minimize that by saying I have anything, anything <laughs> like that other than say every St. Patrick's day. You oh, must sure. have some Irish ancestry because you're, <laughs> you know, very pale and you have red hair. And I'm like, yeah. nope, not one drop. Did the ancestry.com? No Irish came back. But that's, you know, that that's that's like one what, one one millionth of that. Yeah, uh, we are. Sure. We have been talking for a while, and I realize we haven't talked about sports yet. Uh, Morgan, when, yeah. after reading about your ties to the music industry, I was just wondering for you, how much did sports sort of become like? This is how I'm growing my interests that are apart from you know other family members because I think both your sisters were, are were and are very musical and you sort of and you went towards sports. As a well, we all guy. had our, the three of our the three of us had different interests. So Dana, she's the oldest. She is the musician of our generation. And my sister Courtney, she's a chef. She kind of dabbled in sports, 
you know, if you ask me, I, I, I would have loved it if she had stuck with it because she had real talent, but she just didn't take it seriously. She's a more talented athlete than I am. Like she, because difference between me and her, she's tall and I'm short. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and I'll get you a lot farther. Um, yeah, and then for me, you know, I dabbled in music. I was in the band in grade seven and grade eight. Um, again, I do come from a family of musicians. My grandfather, again, was a, a jazz pianist. That's how we wound up here because he got booked up here. Uh, their youngest kid, my uncle Jeff, uh, you know, a lot of your audience might recognize from Red Rider back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you go see Tom Crockett and Red Rider now, he's he's still there playing bass. Um, mm-hmm. But for me, uh, I wasn't dedicated enough to music to really want to make a go of it. And, you know, I saw how uh, each generation of musicians in my family, like when one person would decide, all right, music is my thing. The other ones would be like, don't do this. This life is too stressful. Like, unless you want to pull all your hair out, do not choose this life. And my Uncle Jeff, like my grandfather had that conversation with my Uncle Jeff. Hey, I'll pay for you to go to university. Don't do this. You don't want it. It seems glamorous. It is not. Uncle Jeff, too late. He joined a band called Ocean. Put your hand in the hand of the man that uh, stilled the water. Him. That song. Uh, yeah. And then I remember like one day when Dana was like serious about music, my oldest sister and my uncle Jeff came over and he had that talk with her. He's like, he was like, I don't want to be, I don't want to push a pencil the rest of my life. He's like, it's not about pushing the pencils about keeping the lights on. And I'm here to tell you, it's, it's not that easy in professional music. I'm here to tell you right now. And, you know, but that was what she chose. So I just, I took the clue that, okay, maybe music's not the thing. Uh, that I want to pursue as a living, as a gimmick, as a as a as a, as a vocation, um, and at the same time, about midway through high school, I just started improving at football, like relative to my peers, um, and so that became a thing that, yeah, that I could pursue, um, and it did make me a little bit different from you know the people in my immediate family, but it was also just something that I really enjoyed. So, so in you know, music, uh, big, big theme in the book, big part of the book. Obviously, you're a sports writer, and this is a sports podcast, so we want to get into that. And uh, how were how did Sports Illustrated? I believe you said it started coming to your mailbox around grade four. (laughs) Yes. How did that uh, you know that style of writing, that long form, uh, those long form narratives, kind of influence you and, and lead you to where you are now? Because later, I think you talk about uh in miss morgan's class you're getting a really high mark you're like a c student but you get high mark <laughs> writing right so um the writing find you in some way and was that uh, catalyzed by uh reading those sports illustrateds yeah it was first of all just my parents wanted to encourage reading as a habit you know when i was nine or however old you are in fourth grade I wasn't going to go to the library and, and, and sign out Judy Bloom or whatever, right? <laughs> Although I did wind up reading a lot of Gordon Corman, if you guys remember oh, him. Yeah. Oh, my <laughs> goodness, Gordon Corman. <laughs> yeah, we, go we, could, we could fill an episode. We could fill this with Gordon Corman. Go jump what in the pool. <laughs> go jump. In the, what, was that your favorite? When I was 12, that was my favorite, 100%. Yeah, I remember that one. That they they, um, they they basically commit insider trading in order to raise money for a school yes. pool. <laughs> But um, 
Yeah, so but sports, sports Illustrated, you know, they knew I was into sports, so they just got me this subscription, and that's what that was, you know, my first introduction into good writing uh, was Sports Illustrated, and so I became familiar really early on with Ralph Wiley and Pat Putnam, Gary Smith, um, people like that, uh, Frank DeFord. Um, and so I learned really early on what great sports writing was, even if I wasn't, even if I didn't realize that I was actually being put on a path towards something. Um, and so, you know, even in high school, when I, like I took a writer's craft class and you would have to write fiction, but I'd write these short stories and a lot of them would be about sports. Cause I figured I would just, you know, I'm not a sports writer now. I don't cover anything, but let me just practice writing about sports mm-hmm. via this short fiction. But it was a hundred percent due to the fact that my parents had the foresight to get me this sports illustrator membership or subscription just to get me to start reading. And it worked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and speak, I did not even know that I was like a mark. I was a dupe <laughs> and I for it, but it, Hey, I appreciate it. Yeah. And, and, and speaking of, you know, the late great Ralph Wiley, do you yes. remember anything specific or like one cover story he wrote that just, you know, made you go, Whoa, I didn't know you could write about sports this way. It's a couple of them. One, uh, was a big story about Sugar Ray Robinson, and like, oh man, I think the headline was "A Bittersweet Twilight for Sugar Ray." I think was the so it was they published it in the lead up to Marvin Hagler versus Sugar Ray Leonard. Mm, yeah, eighty seven. And so they went and they tracked down Sugar Ray Robinson in Los Angeles to see what he thought of this fight, and it turned out that he didn't think much of the fight because he his uh, he was in steep cognitive decline. Um. And it became like this career retrospective on Sugar Ray uh, Robinson, contrasted with the fact, like contrasting like all these accomplishments with the fact that like the kids now who were in a youth, like in this community center named after him, had no clue who he was. And then here he is. People are trying to seek him out to see what he thinks about this big middleweight fight coming up. And he's barely with it. He, he barely even understands that these two guys are fighting. So there's that story from Ralph Wiley. And then there was another one about Grant Fuhrer, which really stuck with me because that one took place for the most part in Canada. And that one dealt with blackness and Canadianness, um, And the fact that Grant Fuhrer was like an orphan and his parents weren't sure if he was black. And then he got older and his hair started to curl. And like, oh, <laughs> I guess he's black. Um, you know, it had a sidebar on uh, Tommy Kane, who uh, in those days was a star wide receiver at Syracuse. He's from Little Burgundy in Montreal. His folks are from Nova Scotia. Uh, an outstanding athlete who had a pretty good NFL career, but wrecked his knees and at some point really got into cocaine because the thing he's known for now is being like Canada's O.J. Simpson, where he mm. you know, killed his ex-wife. He might still be in prison. But back then, when he was 22, he was just this guy who the sidebar was on him because it was all about how he wound up choosing football over hockey because hockey was too racist. And so <laughs> those are two that I remember distinctly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, I, 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 I flashed on the one about Ragib Ismail that he, he wrote in yeah. 1989. Yep. And the, uh, was that the one where Rocket was on the cover and it said ready for liftoff? And he had that Notre Dame helmet yeah. with the uh, dollar sign on it? Yeah. 
Or was it the one when uh, that, he, that was he that, 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 that one was that one was later. This one was like Rocket Man, and it was the cover yes. story that they've yes. been working on a while. But it just yes. happened to sync up with the game where he housed two kickoffs in the big yes. house at Michigan. Exactly. Yeah, and, I remember, I remember yeah. that. You know, I was, you know, I'm, sorry. Yeah, I was going to ask this question a little later, but since we're on the topic, I mean, you know, you you know, you write for CBC. You've just written this book. Um, and I know both myself and Nate, huge fans of you know best American sports writing. Get every uh, the yearly installment and read all these amazing stories. But where where do you see things going? I mean, uh, sports media in general, media in general is like it. We I I don't even need to say anything. We all know where that where it seems like it's heading. So in terms of the written word and and the beauty of prose and and just writing well. I mean, where do you see that going? Like your daughter nova do you think she's going to grow up in a world where she's you know reading or is it going to be visual like where do you see things going uh i wish i knew um uh, the problem is i think publishers are going to keep testing our boundaries and keep testing the audiences not appetite because there's no there is no appetite for AI articles. There is no appetite for Drew Ortiz. Right? <laughs> and, yeah, we've been trying to get him on, but he doesn't. There is no appetite, but I think they're going to keep testing our tolerance for right. that. So right now, there's a big blowback. Maybe in five years there won't be, and they're going to keep trying to sneaking it, trying to sneak it in because it's cheap. Um, and so, so many people that own these outlets, like the people that run or licensing Sports Illustrator, the biggest, like highest profile, most recent example, like they're not all that concerned with quality. You know, if they can fill mm-hmm. a page, but so that's my concern, right? Is that the audience gets comfortable because they don't know any different and you're going to like a generation from now, you're just going to have teenagers who don't understand what good writing is because all they've ever read is Drew Ortiz. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, there is always a market for the thing that, um, For the thing that like the bean counters and hedge fund bros that mm-hmm. buy these journalism shops tell you that it's too expensive, tell you that there's no market for it. In the same way that there are, you know, independent musicians still making a living, even yeah. though the record company says, well, according to my metrics, no one should want your album. Okay, well, you can still go out and build an audience. And so even like, uh, look at Defector. Like I subscribe mm-hmm. to Defector. And those are all men and women who left Deadspin because the private equity goons took over Deadspin, right? And gutted that really good site. They gutted it. And so here it's just this group of people, and they uh, they took they brought their audience with them. You know, obviously they spent all these years building an audience in Deadspin, but their site doesn't try to be what it's not. Um, they kind of understand how much they make and how much they can spend. Um, and they do okay. You know, they're 
they make mid seven figures of revenue every year and they've been around what four years now around four years and they haven't mm-hmm. they haven't gone belly up right so it's sustainable so there there is there will be a way for that for great writing to survive i think the question is um who's willing to pay for it as a product but also who's willing to finance the reporting and the news gathering right like you know, when, mm-hmm. before the New York Times got rid of their sports department, you know, they would send me to Las Vegas or Florida or Philadelphia to go report stories. But if I'm doing that on my own, yeah. I don't know if I got money to, I can't front the money to go to Las Vegas and cover this fight without knowing, you know, what the circulation to my little sub stack is or whatever. So that, <laughs> those are the challenges. Yeah, I, I think I think you're bang on. It's and it's you know I hear from a lot of people, especially I know a bunch of people in the tech world, and they're like, well, I subscribe to this and that, and you're like, yeah, but the average person isn't subscribing, right? I mean, you you have to have a bit of expendable income to to go out and and subscribe to someone's Substack or yeah. you know, and then and I so is it is it then going to be the 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 beauty of the pros and the great articles are going to be only be able to be accessed by those that actually have the money to go out and 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 pay to read that stuff and the average person is going to get dumber you know <laughs> yeah yeah and um i don't know uh you know it's it's the 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 infrastructure is crumbling so quickly and like the the new infrastructure that ai infrastructure or just the 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 the, the seo clickbait article infrastructure because they get they pay people to do those too and just crank them out what's trending today oh uh taylor swift's trending give me 10 taylor swift stories before noon right Mm. (laughs) um it's which is that's unsustainable for different reasons um and so a challenge the the challenge is always is like finding a way to make great storytelling pay uh, for the writer, but also for whoever's backing that writer, whether that writer is completely independent or, you know, publishing for some company. But like, yeah, like I wish I knew what the answers were. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's just yeah, your honestly, thought. It, just, it looks, but it just looks really bleak right now, right? It does. Yeah. It does. I'm, I'm fond of, yeah, I'm fond of saying that only Taylor Swift knows how this all works. Right. Uh, but I, I, not to be Pollyanna-ish, uh, Morgan, but how is uh, you know promoting the book since it released uh, two weeks ago showing you that people, there is still an enthusiasm. Uh, and I saw a great thread the, the other day saying, hey, book sales aren't actually going down at all. No. People are, people are still reading. Yeah. Um, I mean, hopefully <laughs> those people start reading my book. I mean, you're asking me about book sales. One of the differences, though, is, uh, you know, when you write for the newspaper, or even you should write online. No matter how good your story is, 99% of the readership comes within the first 12 hours after that story is published. And then mm-hmm. people forget about it. Unless like some celebrity winds up t- discovering it and tweeting it out months later. But like you write the story and if you're looking at the, the traffic to that story, big spike right after you write the story. Or if it publishes overnight, big spike in the morning when people wake up and then it tails off and then that's it after one day. 
Whereas with the book, like I have to keep reminding myself to be patient because in my mind I thought, okay, well, anything, any sales are gonna come are gonna come like in the first day. And then after that, forget it. But I'm like, no, nah, because the first day you might literally sell one book. And so you it's 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 about being patient. But it's it's encouraging that people are still into the written word and you know, I can look at my little author portal at McClellan's at Penguin Random House website and see like what percentage of people are buying the book book versus the ebook versus the audio book. And the vast majority of sales are still uh, the hardcover, which is encouraging. Um, and again, there's always <laughs> just because the bean counters like right off a of market or just are too focused on saving pennies rather than making dollars to like go service that market doesn't mean that market doesn't exist. Mm. And again, it's just sometimes it takes a little persistence and ingenuity and patience and realistic expectations to tap into that market. But those markets are often still there. You, um, you mentioned two things, uh, you know, Taylor Swift and the Drew Ortiz, which are two of the uh, subjects of stories you've written yes. uh, about C for CBC. So uh, for the, I, the our listeners that don't know, maybe have just read the book, maybe haven't aren't familiar with what you do. Can you, can you tell us? Uh, I guarantee you, you more people have read me at CBC than have read the book. <laughs> well, he's yeah. been out I, two weeks. Yeah. No, tell, what, what do you, you know, yeah, tell us about your role uh, at CBC and, and your writing and your, your writing. You said mentioned Substack kind of, aside from the book, some of the things that you do? So what happens is I am a senior contributor at CBC Sports, been doing that for about three and a half years. Uh, so when I left the Toronto Star, it's funny because one of the reasons I left the Toronto Star was just that I had hit this glass ceiling. And, uh, you know, I thought I should have been a columnist. A lot of the worker bees agreed with me, but like no one who had the power to make it happen was inclined, you know, to promote me like that. And so they came along offering buyouts. So I asked them how much I would make in a buyout and they gave me the figures like more than a year's salary. I was like, all right. I asked my wife, she's like, yeah, go do it. Let's go. And so uh, I took the buyout, not really knowing what I was going to do, but it was funny because, you know, I don't know how much you guys read me before I left the star. But a lot, a lot. Well, I worked right. there, so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. So there was, I never had a big name, you know, I didn't have a big name like Bruce or Cajal or anything, but I, you know, among the people that followed it, people knew what I did. I had a brand, you know, and a reputation as a really good feature writer, et cetera. Um, but <laughs> after years and years at the star of, we don't know what to do with you. Cause I was sort of miscast. I didn't cover any of the big sports, you know, and I wasn't mm -hmm. a columnist. We don't know what to do with you. We don't know what to do with your skill set. We don't know what to do with you. Oh, you're really good. We don't know what to do with you. And literally within 36 hours of leaving the star, I had DMs from Scott Sellers. Hey, I know exactly what to do with you. And I got DMs from Chris Wilson at CBC. Hey, I know exactly what to do with you. Mm -hmm. And so that, like, I went and I met with each of them separately, you know. So in one of those meetings, I pitched the book. And then when I met with, with Chris Wilson and Ryan Johnson from CBC, they were like, yeah, would you like to be a columnist? like to host a little show stuff like this so i was like yeah yes and yes and so yeah i've been writing columns every two weeks at cbc.ca for about three and a half years had a show for a while bring it in uh i'm not sure if it's coming back for another season we did oh one season of it. no well no we did one season of bring it in like as a as a yes as a podcast as a conversation then we did a couple seasons as, as like a magazine show 
so I don't know what's happening with it this year. And then over the this past spring and summer, we did Athletics North. So I do some of everything at CBC Sports and then uh, or CBCSports.ca. And then I was uh, I was the main boxing correspondent for the New York Times for a while, basically from January 2020 until they got rid of their sports section this past summer. So that was that's another and again, you know, that was a business decision. Uh, well, the athletic is their sports section now. They right? spent a half a billion dollars on the athletic, and so they want to get a return on their investment. And like, if you're upper management, like, what better way is there to uh, kneecap the union mm-hmm. than to tell a whole unionized department your department's disappearing, and then bring in a bunch of people who are not in the union and say this is your department now? But um, so yeah, and I do some boxing broadcasts on the side. I don't have a Substack yet, but I'm thinking about it because I got to find other ways to sell these books. You know. <laughs> well, you know what? You mean, you mean actually doing like play by like blow by blow, play by play yeah, a box? Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I work with um, for the most part. I work with Corey Erdman, mm-hmm. who is like everywhere on boxing broadcast now. You'll find him on the Zone, uh, uh, UFC Fight Pass, wherever. But we do fights out of Montreal that air on ESPN Plus. So. Mm. Yeah, they keep us busy, man. I, I'm I'm interested. Uh, I hope the Athletic North comes back because I'm I, I want to hear what you're you know more about uh, Noah Lyles and and there, this is going to be a really fun uh, athletics competition in Paris this year. So many characters, men and women across the board. I mean, even in high jump, uh, or is it high jump with Tambouri? <laughs> shaves half of his face. Yes, yeah, yeah. Like so, so yeah. I'm I'm excited. I hope I hope to hear uh, more. Depending on on how nerdy your audience is, the track and field, because mm-hmm. Noah Lyles had a race this past weekend, right? Sixty meter dash, and you, mm-hmm. you can go now look at the yep ten meter split times. Yeah. So Noah Lyles covered fifty to sixty meters in point eight one seconds. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There is only one other sprinter in history who has done that under legal conditions. I'm going to let you guys guess what his name is. Does it rhyme, does it rhyme with Colt? Exactly. <laughs> and so on the one level, this is just an impressive run. But the fact that like he's hitting Usain Bolt level top speeds, he might be, you know, if he stays healthy, like he might have a gigantic season. You, you know what I love about uh, what's recently happened in, in, in track uh, specifically in the last little while is I, I actually, I think most of us in Canada kind of Carl Lewis, whatever, kind of always had a disdain for us track and now they're lovable across the board. Yes. Like, uh, <laughs> like Noel Lyles said the greatest thing. And it was probably the last thing you'd expect to hear from an American, which is that you can't call yourself a world champion yes. unless you're competing against the world. Like, thank yes. you, Noah. And then, <laughs> Shakari Richardson, amazing, you know, like like all across the board that just, you know, running the outside lane to win at the world championships. Like they're a really likable bunch. Yeah. And Shakari, for whatever reason, was polarizing. And like, what is there not to like about Shakari? Like, so listen, man, if you think it's unusual, the people that think it's unusual that Shakari was just so like bombastic and outspoken and like fantastic and fabulous with her fashion. Like if you think that's, unusual or off-putting like you don't watch enough track and field because that's who is there it's especially in the sprints it's a sport full of like uh 
I hesitate to use the phrase alphas because of the way, you know, like mm-hmm. obnoxious dudes use that phrase, but you know what I mean? Yeah. It's full of people who are used to being number one and who know they're good and they're used to letting other people know they're good and they back up the big talk with performances. Shakari's not the only one, uh, but that's what makes it intriguing is that it's out of eight people in that final, six of them are convinced that they will win. <laughs> It's not, I hope I might win. It is, I know I'm going to win. And only one of them is going to be right. What, what's likable, too, for me about Shikari is that, you know, she kind of got hosed on Tokyo. I mean, it was a, yep. a, a weed, you know, I don't know. Like, I'm not really, I don't I don't hate you if you smoked weed. Yeah. I don't think you had an advantage, you know. Yeah, if, you can stay in your, if you can stay in your lane after that. Yes, it makes me slower. It slows down your reflexes. <laughs> like, she might as well have been running in quicksand and she's still. Yeah, so they're likable. They're likable. Yes. Um, I know you've given us a lot of your time. There's a couple more things we want to get into if you do have the I take time. Your time. No, no one's at the house right now. My, my wife's at the gym uh, and my daughter is at the gym with her. She's at Kids Academy at Lifetime. Oh. So I actually have a little bit of time right now. Well, I, it's great. It's rare. The next, the next, thank you. Well, thank well, We're lucky. And the, the question does involve your wife. Uh, so <laughs> anyway. um, and for those that don't know, your wife is Perdita Felician, yes. uh, world champion, hurdler, and uh, uh Basically, she put out one of the best books we've had on the podcast, uh, My yes. Mother's Daughter. And uh, you, I didn't know about, I knew you as a writer, but when I read this book, I, I found out more about your athletic background. And <laughs> no, but I mean, you're, is that what you call it? U.S. colleges. <laughs> and and um, hey, I think you described yourself as having abs on top of abs. At 18, like, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, so, so not, uh, quite, not, not quite anymore, but at 18, yes. Um, so I, I guess before I prompt you to read, uh, and uh, you may have been told, uh, I want to ask you about, I guess, athlete, athlete, athletes, I ask this to a lot of people that come on the podcast, we do, um, you know, generally, you're competitive, you know, there's, there's yeah. a competitive gene. So I want to know if you and did you when Perdita released that book, and it was a dynamite book, were you like, I got to make sure my book is just as badass? Or were you? No, were, I'm, you know, I'm not. I'm not competitive with her. No, uh, I do. Um, look, man, <laughs> you talk to like ex bosses, like the ones that haven't liked me. They'll tell you I got a big ego. When they say that about me, they're not wrong. They might be wrong about other stuff about me. They're not wrong about that. But okay. the way I explain that is like, look. <laughs> do you guys follow wrestling like you remember old school wrestling old school yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Can you, can you think of can you picture arn anderson yeah the yeah. Vaguely. yeah enforcer vaguely. like a white dude with the suntan and like the bulky bulky muscle 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 dad bod <laughs> right okay all bulk and no cuts and like kind of early onset male pattern baldness <laughs> oh yeah yeah i remember that or yeah. yeah and he had that southern twangy accent and one of the one of his famous lines was I don't want to toot my own horn, but toot, toot. Because right? <laughs> honestly, as a black person in Canadian journalism, on the one hand, you will get bosses that want to tell you to tone down the ego and blah, blah, blah. But if you try to make yourself this like humble and deferential person the one the if you make try to make yourself the humble and deferential person they are trying to tell you that they want you to be you will not get anywhere in this business I and mean, you're black in journalism anywhere but like especially in canada because the, the the industry is so overwhelmingly white you have to advocate for yourself 
you have to like Arn Anderson toot your own horn. You gotta you don't necessarily have to have a big ego. I just happen to have one. But I have a big ego because I know I'm good. I'm good. I know it. If you ask me, I'm not gonna downplay it. You know, and that's that has rubbed some bosses the wrong way, but yeah, I don't care. Um, um but that's where my ego is. But in terms of like with my wife, I'm not competitive. No, no, no. Like her book was awesome. Mm-hmm. That's fine. I didn't think about writing a better book than her book. I just wrote a, thought about writing the best book possible. But my ego says I'm writing the best book possible just so that people understand I'm one of the best. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so I want to want you to uh, tee up the reading. I, this is the reading you did. Uh, Nate said he's heard it on another podcast. I heard it when I went to your book launch. Yeah, I think uh, I did it on Kareem, Kareem Kanji's podcast. Too. That's, yeah. that's the one. Welcome. With it's easy, you know Kanji. why? Because it is, it's, it's short, but it also touches like all of the different themes in the book. So yeah, um, if you can explain what you're about to read and then read it. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, so what happens is uh, this book sort of the, the central pivot point of this book is uh the first week of my last year in high school that's when my dad dies he had cancer so like he lived with cancer for he had had cancer for a while but it wasn't diagnosed and then he lived a year after he had diagnosed he was diagnosed obviously and operated on he lived a year after that and he dies right before uh, my last year in high school and um his death sets off like yet another huge family feud because my mom's family, my dad's family never got along. And so, you know, there's hence the title of the book is that I come from this family whose two sides don't get along. Uh, so that's one of the meanings of the title of the book. And so uh, by that point, I was really serious about football. I was getting recruited by a lot of Canadian schools and a handful of smaller American schools. Um, but then, you know, my dad dies like right before, uh, practice starts essentially uh, my last year of my last high school season. And so I take a week off. Sorry, I had a, I had a week of practice while he was in the hospital and then he died. So I took the next week off of school and then I came back and uh, <laughs> came back and played football. I played as well as I could, but it was, you know, it was a heavy season. Uh, reg- and that has, it was a heavy season before even factoring in the fact that my high school football team was bad, 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 bad. So when you read this book, <laughs> you will understand all the ways that we sucked. And one of the things I noted, one of the things I point out in the book is it was good preparation for like working in dysfunctional newsrooms because yeah, I saw that. practice <laughs> gave me practice. Let me see firsthand how teams don't work and how to demotivate your team. I got it all firsthand in high school football. So what happens is towards the end of that season, we've lost a bunch of games, but we finally have a game that we might win against Arendelle High School. I went to the Woodlands, Central Mississauga. Arendelle's a little bit further west, corner of uh, Dundas and Aaron Mills Parkway. My school's mm-hmm. on Arendelle Station Road, uh, about a kilometer north of yeah, about a kilometer, not even a full kilometer, about half a kilometer. No, kilometer. Maybe a kilometer, half a mile north of uh, <laughs> north of Dundas. So the school, two schools are about 10, 12 minutes apart driving, just on opposite sides of the Credit River. So they're one of our rivals. And uh, one of the few teams that season that like we actually think we can beat as opposed to hope we can beat. Um, and so again, I'm back 
at school. My family's in full meltdown. And here I am in this football game. So we'll start. Don Ballantyne took the snap and tossed me the ball. And for maybe the second time all season, the Woodlands Rams executed a play precisely as designed. A wall of red jerseys formed along the offensive line without a single green-shirted Arendelle Raider knifing into the backfield to disrupt me. No missed blocks by the little guys on the perimeter where a good cornerback would have closed in from the sideline to steer me toward his pursuing teammates. Kevin, my good friend, Kevin Gregory, Kevin uh, manhandled Arendelle's outside linebacker to give me a clean running lane, and this time I had to take it. Final quarter of the second last game of the season, facing the only beatable team left on our schedule. Trailing by just four points instead of our usual 10 or 20, with only a handful of minutes remaining, I couldn't afford to seek out a big collision here. A touchdown would give us a late game lead. Our defense remained about as airtight as a screen door, but if the offense could pull off this one perfect play, maybe our defense could figure it out just for a series. I turned upfield and hit the afterburners. The faster I ran, the slower time seemed to unfold. I could already picture this touchdown run on the highlight tape I planned to send to college coaches after the season. Only question, as I sped past Arendelle's bench, was whether to lead or to close with it. This run felt like vindication after a summer spent training instead of doing fun but pointless teenage stuff for investing, for investing instead of sacrificing. The week after my dad died, as the two sides of my family found new and familiar ways to feud, I would still sneak out of the house to the hill in the park across the street and run sprints. I needed a break from the bickering, but I also wanted to sharpen myself for moments like this, when I'd hit top speed with the Arendelle Raiders flailing in my wake, looking at the back of my jersey and the soles of my feet. When I returned to school after the funeral, I took a black marker to my white Nike cleats. On the heel of the left shoe, I wrote PC. On the right, T-R-O-Y. Pete Campbell, they reminisce over you. I didn't cross myself after first downs or say a silent prayer after every, sorry. I didn't cross myself after first downs or say a silent prayer every time I flattened a ball carrier. But my dad flashed across my mind as I sped down the sideline, past Arendelle's bench, where players and coaches groaned because their four-point lead only had seconds to live. Ten strides from the end zone, I thrust my left hand overhead, then pointed my index finger to the sky. It cost me a little speed, but nobody on the field had a top gear faster than mine. I could have moonwalked to the end zone. The Arendelle Raiders weren't chasing me down. The number one symbolized nothing for the Woodlands Rams, who dwelled as far as possible from top spot in the standings. No wins. Fewest points scored. Most points allowed. But if we played mistake-free defense after this touchdown, it could represent our win total that season. I didn't consider it in the moment. I just felt like a winner as I dashed past Arendelle's bench, so I gave them the index finger. When I crossed the goal line, I expected elation but felt relief satisfaction at the payoff for hard work. I paused in the end zone, my back to the field, spread my arms and bathed in the sensation. I tilted my head back and gazed at the sky and raised my, sorry, I tilted my head back and gazed at the sky and raised my finger once more. PC, 
T-R-O-Y. Six points for you, Dad, and a win, too. Finally. I pivoted to face the field in the setting sun, which turned the blue sky orange in the distance. In a few minutes, it would duck behind the hulking police station that stood on the other side of Aaron Mills Parkway at the corner of Dundas, but seemed to loom over the whole neighborhood. And I saw the bright yellow penalty flag lying crumpled in the grass near midfield. <laughs> Knew what it meant even before I saw Kevin and Don begging the referee to change his mind, or the guys on Arendelle's sideline smiling and high-fiving. Holding. Offense. Ten-yard penalty from the spot of the foul. The referee stood 50 yards upfield and signaled for another official to bring him the ball. Woodlands Rams losing habits. I sighed and shook my head and started a slow jog back to the huddle. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And, and, and did it really, did it really matter? I mean, in the end of the day, did it matter? I mean, you did, you did it right. I mean, how did you feel like, looking back on it? And I'm imagining on, that. Yeah. How on, did you on that play? Yeah, like no, we were pissed because we 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 our team was so bad. This was the only chance we had to win, and <laughs> I scored that touchdown. We're winning twelve to ten. This is the only time we had led a game, right, in the second half, all season. So in terms of like recruiting, it was fine because it's like that Rocket Ismail touchdown against Colorado in the national championship game. Right, uh, it still helped him, you know, score that contract with the Argos because what people remember is. This is this guy. This is this incredible athlete doing right. what he does. But no, that touchdown did matter. And actually, what wound up happening was uh, two things. One is that I told the rest of my teammates, like the next time I get the ball, if I get around the corner, everybody just take a knee. Do not touch anyone. <laughs> and that's how we'll avoid uh, touchdowns, or that's how we'll avoid penalties. But that was actually <laughs> to get deeper into it. That was my last carry as a high school running back because. Oh. I played both ways, right? But I wasn't always in at running back. I was always in on defense. I wasn't always in at running back. So the other running back got hurt. Uh, and he was just supposed to take one play off. And I didn't even I didn't wait for the coaches to put me in. I just went in. <laughs> and so they gave me the ball. I got the touchdown, but then afterward they were mad at me for like unilaterally deciding to go in as as opposed to waiting for them to put me in. So my my punishment uh, was that they didn't put me back in at running back the rest of the season, even though, like, this is, again, when you talk about, like, dysfunctional workplaces, I had plenty of practice. <laughs> yeah, there was a part where you, they, you talked about they put you in at middle linebacker and you're... <laughs> well, they, they, they didn't put me in at middle linebacker. To your to your audience, I'm five foot seven, and I was 150 pounds in high school. And uh, what happened was <laughs> the middle linebacker got kicked out of the game because... Right, he, right, yeah kick somebody so they put the free safety to middle linebacker i moved up to free safety free safety got kicked out because he gave the umpire gave the referee the finger so then i moved down to middle linebacker five foot seven listen that was a long afternoon the, the guy the coaches loved he had fire and in the, him. the coaches loved him but, but <laughs> the thing is though you wrote i mean i when we go back to that touchdown that was for your dad and it got called back so i mean in that sense i mean was it in your head? You did you feel like yeah, I, I scored it, whatever. But that was still for him. Like did yeah, did yeah, yeah. Like, well, in terms of just like the part of it that's about like me showing that I'm better than everyone else. Right. Yeah, that that stands. But we and were yeah. missed that that because this was the only chance we had to win a game. 
And, <laughs> That's what happened. And your cleats say Troy because, uh, of course, Pete Rock and C.L. Smooth. So yes. this, happened, this happened right after that got released? Or? That song was 92. Yeah. This was 94. Okay. But so, that yeah. song is timeless. Like, people still it use is. that song now. You know? oh, 100%. Um, sorry, Nate. I know. Uh, you. Do you have anything to jump in on, Nate, here? Uh, uh, well, well, I did want to ask another foot. I guess it's another football thing. Uh, you, you talked to, yeah, you talked about what did it, what does it mean that uh, sh- Chicagoans cheered for the idea of the Chicago Bears, as you, as you wrote in that because essay on the 85 team? Because Chicagoans are really proud football fans, especially back then, because this was, bef- this was the season leading up to the Super Bowl, that the Bears won Super Bowl 20. Mm-hmm. Chicagoans are, are very, very, very proud football fans. Um, you know, in that season, you heard a lot about the Monsters of the Midway. And Chicago has this really deep-rooted pro football tradition. Mm-hmm. Except the vast majority of Bears' seasons are mediocre. And, like, all their success, the majority of their success, their NFL championships came, you know, in these years it straddled World War II. You know, in in the early to mid to sort of late 1940s. So by the 80s, you know, they're having this successful season and young guys like me were tuning in and our parents are watching. You, you keep hearing about the monsters of the Midway. You would think, if you didn't know any better, that this was just like this uninterrupted tradition of success. Right. And now, like that, I'm older and I can like look up records. I'm like, no, it's not. Like, you guys <laughs> have this idea that the way that you think Chicagoans go about playing football. But the reality is, you guys would be like two and 14, three and 13 yeah. uh, before the 16 game season, two and 12, one and 13, like this. They missed the playoffs like year after year after year after year. And so it was the idea of this dominant. Uh, bruising, broad-shouldered football team that Chicagoans had, but the reality of that team for a lot of years is that they were, you know, like I said in the book, they vacillated between bad and average. <laughs> the and, reality and, is no quarterback. That I think that me and Nate talked about that with Eric Kramer. We had as our guest two episodes. Oh yeah, so he knows. Uh, go ahead, Nate. He's he's one of the good Chicago Bears quarterbacks, right? Compared to yeah, he, he stole Shane like, Matthews and yeah. Mitch Trubisky. <laughs> yeah, I was just wondering was was it was there anything is there anything endemic about Chicago or the Bears that's kept them from having a quarterback who's the is guy, it, or is it just that hard to find one? No, because everyone else seems to find one. Well, I'm a Vikings there's, fan. We haven't had one since Fran Tarkenton. There, <laughs> no, you guys had Randall Cunningham. You guys say had me. Yeah, I literally have a pic, picture of Randall Cunningham on my wall. Like, you but, guys had some big guns, but we only had him for two years. Yeah, <laughs> but um. If an organization is that bad that long, uh, what changes and what doesn't? Right. Usually, it's, usually it's the people at the top, like the thank you, the governors so, of the franchise. There is your answer. <laughs> Let me tell you. Listen, how incompetent the Chicago Bears are. They have been trying to shake down the city of Arlington Heights for like all these subsidies in exchange for moving this building a stadium out there and just haven't been able to do it. And this is the easiest hustle to run in all of pro sports. You just go to a city and say, give us a bunch of money and tax breaks 
and we'll bring the team out there. And the Bears have not been able to do this. These people, they bought there's a there was a old racehorse track in arlington heights it's like a northwest suburb of chicago it's like oh, okay northwest side okay not not where it's a suburb it's not in yeah. the city at all oh okay and so there was a racehorse track out there but it's closed down um and it's a really affluent suburb too right and uh the bears go buy this property because it's where they want to build this new stadium so they pay 200 million dollars for this property so the city when they're calculating the property tax bill, they tax this place as if it's worth $200 million, <laughs> which, which is what you do. That's the most recent valuation. It's very, it's, it's recent and it's reliable because that's the size of the check you wrote. To which the bears responded, we don't want to pay this much in tax. We don't understand how you guys got the idea that this land is worth $200 million said the people who just wrote a check for $200 million. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's that level of like cluelessness. It's just infested this franchise for generations. So like this new crew, like Ryan Poles and the rest, maybe they'll get something done. But there's a tradition of incompetence there that they got to overcome. They're swimming the, against the current. The the idea of, you know, you're, you're going to tell you the story, you're fighting family, and we can probably close on this uh, unless you have something neat. But the idea of, like, you know, you weave through the uh, the Bears, uh, that Super Bowl season, and and, and kind of the, the, the weaving of sports through your the narrative of this fighting family of yours. Um, did you Did you feel when you, like, was it a thing that you tried to insert, or did you feel all along that, you know, um sports were directly tied into what was going on in your life at that time um yeah well part of it is just that sports are a language i speak Mm -hmm. um and to the extent that the audience for this book is people that have followed my career they know it's a language they speak to um and so even in in chapters that weren't about sports you know there are sports references you know you know, I, I compared my mom, like her punching power to Archie Moore's, you know, and, <laughs> and her hand speed to Ray Leonard's. Uh-huh. You know, that chapter was not about sports, but it's a good way to make, it's an easy way to make people understand. Um, and then because my parents are Chicagoans, like they take football very seriously. They take the, ba- the Bears very seriously, even though most years the Bears, all they're going to do is waste your Sunday afternoons. <laughs> <and let you're laughs> down, right. But that year, they were good. And that was, you know, the, the year that the Bears had this historic season was also the same year that my parents' marriage was really running aground. And so I couldn't tell one of those stories without the other. Mm. Um, and like the thing about us having this family therapy session on the same night as Monday Night Football where the Bears are playing the Dolphins <laughs> with yeah. immortality on the line, that was true. And so it all lined up. So there's no way to tell one half of that story without telling the other half of that story. I think both me and you, Nate, too. I think like there's signposts in your life as when you're a real sports fan that you just, oh, I was, you know, that game happened on this night. You know, you always tie the two together. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I, yeah. I, 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 unless you have something, Nate, I just want well, to say. Well, I, I, did, I did want to ask, Morgan, when, when did it hit you that your mom, uh, Jeannie, is the star of the book, as I've heard you say? Um... When people started reading the galley, so this would probably okay. be like in the fall, and they'd be like, oh, 
I love your mom. <laughs> your mom's so awesome. Your mom's so strong. Because <laughs> uh, she's in there a lot, and 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 you know, there's this strength that she exudes, like a physical strength, but also a mental, emotional, spiritual strength. Um, you know, because one point early in the book, like she punches out a bully, like she literally knocks the guy out. <laughs> He's like way bigger than her, but she's like she just was sick of the. She was sick. Can I swear? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was a loud one. Yeah, she was just sick of the bullshit, and she just turned around and punched this guy out. So people reckon people appreciate that she was strong enough to knock this guy out, but also strong enough to not like beat up on her dad and her mother in law, who were like acting like two spoiled brats the week my dad died, and she was the only adult in the room. And she would have been within her rights to like uh, knock them the fuck out. Yeah, you know when you watch like wrestling, like a, a handicap match, and one guy clotheslines two people. Yeah, yes. If she had done that to them, people would have been like, "Yeah, they deserved it." But she was strong enough not to. She was the adult in the room, and she was strong enough not to do that, even though both of them deserved it. So like, people really uh, relate to that and admire that. Just, just because you brought them up, and I'm sorry, Nate, did I mow your grass? On well, that? no, uh, no, no, not at all. I, I, I just also want to point out again from from listening to your other appearances, and, and we want people to buy buy your book and then read it over and over. You're sort of, you, you, you use the, you analogize that it's sort of, it's s, it's like essay format, and it's kind of like an album in that sense. Yeah, because I didn't want to write just one straight narrative. There are a lot of memoirs like that, and the way I built this book around details and flashing back in time and flashing forward in time wasn't really going to work in, in like 300 straight pages. So I wrote it in essays. So I've, I've lost count of the number, but let me see. It's about how many chapters? Let me see. I thought it was like 21, but I could about 20. Yeah. About 21 different essays. And so I like to think of it as a, as an album where if you really like an album, every time you want to go back to it, first of all. You want to revisit it. You know, No one just buys an album and listens to it one time and then puts it away forever. But when you go back to the album, you don't always listen to the whole thing from top to bottom. You might some days, but other days you might just, you want to hear one song. So I want to build a book like that where you, if you want to revisit it, you can. You don't have to feel intimidated by having to read all 300 pages again. You can just read that one chapter about high school football or that, that, that one chapter about uh, the musicians who used to come through my grandparents' house. So, yeah, that was a choice. Uh, I'll I'll leave you with this. Uh, one thing that stood out to me particularly, and you're talking about like looking at a certain section, I want to go back and read it, just thinking about it right now, is kind of how you give us a perspective of the house. And you talked about your paternal grandparents. Um, and they had that house in Chicago. And then at yeah. the end, you know, you, you, go by, you go by Chicago and you see these kind of vacant lots yeah. and then you kind of tell the whole story and it becomes that yeah. vacant lot but that, now you know as a reader you know the kind of soul that is in that house and the stories behind it so when you're not passing by when you pass by that vacant lot it's really not vacant no matter no, what no i don't but i don't pass by that vacant lot anymore I, that, it, it bothers me so i don't but, drive down but we do. I don't drive down that street but <laughs> people but as people we do and we never oh, yes. think about it right yeah never, oh, yes yes exactly but so you you put a face on that and a soul yeah. to a vacant lot, which I thought was super interesting and cool. So um, 
yeah sorry if you wanted to comment on that feel free no 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 no. yeah like, I, yeah when i'm in chicago i i avoid that neighborhood because i don't it bothers me to look at the house where my dad grew up that's not the, it's a patch of grass and that it's you know, that's never going to sit right with me on that note um thank you so much for giving us so much of your time uh congratulations on the book and um yeah, for our readers or sorry, our listeners, you can uh, buy the book on our website. Uh, just click the link. And um, thanks again, Morgan. Yeah, and remind them to leave a five-star review just so that the algorithm knows what's up. Well, that's, nice. that's the next challenge in, in as next level uh, book marketing is uh, m- making sure the algorithm knows the score. <laughs> thanks. Um <laughs> Okay, I was just leaving a pause there for our, our edit. Um, Morgan, I just want to tell you too, um, this isn't going to be part of the recording that will make it to air, but uh, I don't know if Perdita told you, but uh, I think you should check out this. Do you have Amazon Prime? Yes. So I I made a movie called Drop the Needle about Play to Record. Oh, um, yes. Okay, got you, got you, got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think you, because of all the stuff you write about like Buffalo and like the idea of like going, like that was a big theme in the movie too. So I think you might get something yeah. out Yeah. Yeah, I was like going to draw interject with that. I was like, Neil, you got to bring up the movie because I I literally pictured the exact scene that they and the yeah. way uh, Neil and uh, Rob, the director, what they did to illustrate that. Oh, I, I, I could go on for hours. Yeah, check it out. <laughs> yeah, because you guys are like one of the drop uh, played a record was like when I was listening when I would listen to the Power Move show on CNN yeah. and they yeah. were one of the few people because they didn't have a lot of commercials, but that yeah. was one of the consistent. Yeah advertisers right yeah and that's yeah. where you would go like uh to get tickets like if black moon was coming to toronto or yeah. whatever, right <laughs> where yeah. are you gonna get tickets ticket master wasn't what it is now you know oh, no. you have to I go mean, to play the record and get the get your black moon tickets it's actually across the street from my house right now so i'm actually uh, slick rick is coming to town and i'm buying my physical ticket from eugene so um, <laughs> um anyway yeah check it out uh and thank you again uh it was awesome we really enjoyed the book no problem. Uh, and i hope uh you have a lot of success with it and say hi well, to I, I appreciate that leave you guys leave your five-star reviews to uh goodreads <laughs> amazon wherever We'll do, Morgan. We'll do. T-Sad algorithm, what's what. (laughs) But I appreciate you guys. Thank you. All right, thank you. Take care. Good night. Ciao.